Welcome again to Potomac Hills Presbyterian Church. As I said, my name is Frank Wong. I'm one of the pastors here. It's great to see so many of you here this morning. Um, it's great to see a lot of new faces as well um, and some old faces that have come back uh, for college. So welcome back to our returning um, Patrick Henry students and welcome to our new Patrick Henry students as well uh, that are here visiting, checking us out. Uh, we hope that you find uh, your welcome here as well. So again, uh, if you would turn with me to Mark chapter 14, uh, we'll be continuing our series in the Gospel of Mark. Um, we're in verses 43 to 65. And as you're turning there, a quick word of context. Uh, last week, we looked at Jesus' time in the Garden of Gethsemane. In many ways, the garden kicks off sort of the downward spiral to the cross. In literary terms, it's when everything sort of starts to go wrong for our heroes, leading to that climactic point in the plot when everything turns. And that's the cross and the resurrection. And so this morning, as we examine Jesus' arrest and subsequent hearing, we find ourselves feeling like suddenly things are unraveling for our Lord. And yet we're going to see how all of the things that sort of go wrong are, in fact, all part of the plan. And naturally, there's a ton of things to, to learn from this passage, and the details are fascinating and add so much depth to this passage, but we don't have time for everything because I already have a book, right? So uh, we're going to be focusing on betrayal, uh, sovereignty, and identity this morning, so let's buckle up and let's get going. So reading verses 43 to 65 in Mark chapter 14. And immediately when, while he was speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore wit false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is, this, what is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? 
You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him to death, uh, condemned him as deserving death. And some began uh, to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. Let's pray. Father, as we look at the arrest of your son and our Lord, our hearts tremble with indignation and contempt for Judas and the Sanhedrin. But humble us, for we ourselves are betrayers too, as we consistently sin against you each day. Would you show us the depravity of our hearts while also showing us the sovereignty that is the foundation of your grace? Show us your gospel this morning in your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, for those of you that don't know me, um, I like movies, right? And of course, since I'm preaching, there's a good chance that we're going to start with movie reference. And so how many of you, show of hands, have seen the 1998, some of you weren't born that, at that point, I understand that, uh, 1998 action thriller Ronin starring um, Robert De Niro? Anyone? A few? Okay. A couple. It's a great movie. Um, it's a movie about a team of mercenaries that are hired to steal a briefcase to prevent it from falling into the hands of the Russian mafia. Right? And as with many sort of most spy-related movies, betrayal, intrigue, and a myriad of plot twists sort of make the mo movie gripping um, and sort of interesting. Right? And as the characters betray each other and reveal their true identities, Robert De Niro's character, his name is Sam in the movie, remains true to himself. He's sort of the steady rock throughout the movie. And it makes you wonder, nobody's being true to themselves, who is this guy, right? And, and in the end, spoiler alert, not really a big spoiler, but spoiler alert, there's a final twist that reveals that Sam has been working on something completely different, masterfully directing all the different players in his hidden scheme. If you want the details, the movie is well worth the watch. Um, but at the center of all of it um, is this question, who are you really? It's asked time and again in the mind of the viewer as betrayals and reveals sort of pop up left and right. And it's kind of hard to sort of keep track of who's on whose side. And yet we know that Sam, Robert De Niro's character, is always going to come out on top. Why? Because there's sort of this plot sovereignty that directs things towards Sam's desired end simply because we know that Sam is the hero, right? And so Sam's perceived and true identities both drive both the betrayals and his inevitable victory. And the same could be said here in Mark 14. The question, who is Jesus, has been the focal point of Mark's um, whole book up to this point. Way back in Mark 4, 41, that was a long time ago, right? So try to remember. Right after the calming of the storms, what do the disciples wonder? They wonder, who then is this? that even the wind and the sea obey him. And so everybody has a take on Jesus, right? And the question on our minds this morning as sort of things unravel toward the cross is, who is this that is being betrayed and arrested and will ultimately head to the cross? And by this point, we've already seen that Judas was intent on betraying Jesus. But who, just who was G Jesus to Judas? Let me say that again. Just who was Jesus to Judas? And when we come to the Sanhedrin, we've known for most of the book that they've been gunning for Jesus, right? But who is Jesus to them? 
both of those takes on Jesus are held in contrast to Jesus' true identity, which he finally confesses in verse 62. And so as we go through the betrayal, arrest, and trial, we're looking for how Jesus' identity is at the center of everything that happens. Hopefully we'll see, that, see what led Judas and the Sanhedrin to betrayal, and we'll see how Jesus' true identity uh, drives everything toward the gospel salvation that arrives at the, that, that awaits at the cross in sort of his sovereignty. So let's start with Judas's betrayal. As we look at the worst uh, betrayal in human history, the question of motivation always comes up. Why did Jesus, uh, Judas turn on Jesus? Didn't he know that Jesus was the Messiah? How could he not know? He was one of the disciples, right? And while we don't get sort of an explicit motivation for this particular sin, um, for this particular betrayal, we can sort of piece together some biblical evidence that will, try to help, that will help us try to understand what's motivating Judas. We don't really get much about Judas Iscariot in the scriptures, but probably the most uh, important piece of evidence is what we find in John chapter 12, verses 5 and 6. For some context, uh, Jesus is sitting down. He's at the house of Mary and Martha. Mary has just anointed Jesus with some expensive ointment. And so picking up uh, with Judas in verse 5, he says, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? But John then reveals Judas's motivation and character in verse 6. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And so what we're seeing is that John identified Judas as being motivated by personal gain. The, uh, the objection of Judas wasn't because of a righteous care for the poor. He simply wanted to skim the proceeds out of the money bag, right? And so it's not just pilfering. It's not just theft. Because he's actively trying to push things towards his own personal gain. If we connect that to the price that he was paid for betraying Judas, jeez, uh, so Judas and Jesus, very close, right? You mix, mix them up all the time. So uh, the price that Judas was paid for betraying Jesus, 30 pieces of silver, right? And we can see a pattern, a condition of the heart that was sort of incompatible to the gospel. Judas was out for himself. He stuck with Jesus when he thought it would be advantageous. But as soon as the nature of Jesus' kingdom and the suffering the disciples would endure, when that all became clear, Judas wanted no part. Remember, we are to be like our Savior, right? Romans 8.29 reminds us that Christian, the, the Christian desires to be conformed to the image of Christ. Well, that image isn't one of a glorious conquering king at the head of a great army. Jesus is that too, but only later, Right? Rather, it's one of a suffering servant who died on a cross innocently for the sake of others. It's a life of service. It's a life of sacrifice. It's a life of death to self. And so it's not really possible to be about yourself and be a Christian. For we have been crucified with Christ, right? And we no longer live, but Christ who lives within me. It's not easy to be a follower of Christ. It's hard. The Christian life is one of grace, of forgiveness, of suffering. And clearly, that is not what Judas wanted. We can see what Judas thought of Jesus in the way that he betrays him, right? That infamous kiss. 
It's so utterly incongruous with what Judas was doing. And the Greek word here for kiss isn't the usual one. Rather, it's an intensified form of the word. And so it means that the kiss is lavish. It communicates a deep sense of affection and honor. But here, that deep, intense, lavish love that was supposed to be communicated by the kiss is flipped on its head by the context. Because of, after all, context is king, right? And so the betrayal that Judas is perpetrating through this kiss turns the kiss into one dripping with hatred and contempt. And maybe sort of the subtext in Judas's mind went something like this. This is how much I want to twist the knife in your back, Jesus. You thought I was your friend, that I loved you. Well, some friend you were to me, you didn't give me what I wanted. We could have been great. We could have been great leaders together, rich, famous, living the good life, living the glorious life. Now you're under arrest and you're nothing to me. But ultimately, what did Judas accomplish in his betrayal? Absolutely nothing. After all, the cross was always where Jesus wanted to go. Even the ultimate betrayal, the betrayal that meant that it would have been better that Judas not have been born, was worked sovereignly into the plan of the gospel. Because Jesus was a meal ticket and sort of uh, a lottery ticket to Judas, Jesus' true identity as the Messiah meant that he was always going after something else, just like Sam in our opening illustration. Judas thought that the whole game was himself, his pleasure, and his comfort, and so he went after it by any means necessary. But Jesus is after something different, right? He's after salvation. He's after redemption and glory. And it's not for himself, but for others. And there's even grace here in the garden for Judas. Matthew 26 is the parallel account to this. And in verse 50, he tell, it, Matthew tells us that after Judas kissed Jesus. Jesus said to Judas, friend, do what you came to do. Did you catch that, what he said to him? Even as Judas betrayed him, Jesus called him friend. It wasn't the expected angry shove accompanied by a curse, right? Rather, it was a tender plea to Judas to repent. Think about how we would react to such a, a betrayal. Think about what Jesus must have been feeling when one whom he had spent years loving and pouring into, as that guy betrayed him. And in, in the midst of all that hurt and righteous anger, what did Jesus do? He extended grace. It was the gospel reaching out to the worst of us. And before we turn our attention to Jesus' hearing before the Sanhedrin, there's that interesting tidbit, right, that you all have been waiting for an explanation for. Uh, what's with the account of the young man fleeing naked from the mob? Uh, what's, what's it doing here, right? And let me address that really quickly before we move on. To be honest, last week, uh, I asked Dave, Dr. Dave, the senior pastor, what I was supposed to do with these verses because they're kind of random and they just sort of plop in here and you're like, what is this? And Dr. Dave, uh, very funnily, um, suggested that I just have a streaker run through and that's just how I would address it, right? 
But of course, one of us has to have good common sense. I said no, so no streaker today. Anyway, most theologians right, think that this is actually the author of the book, Mark himself, because most of the details fit. The linen uh, cloth is an undergarment that is rather expensive and um, would only be available to a family of means, and that's where Mark comes from. He comes from a family of means. And furthermore, Mark's house was important to the, in the early church era. He might have received word about the mob that is heading out to capture Jesus, and so um, he's sort of hastily dressing to go out after them to witness what's going to happen. And really, this tidbit is there to say that Mark was probably there, that he was an eyewitness account to lend authenticity to this account. But it also, it also reminds us that and highlights the utter aloneness and isolation of our Lord Jesus after his betrayal. Because it's not just the disciples that leave him. It's all the onlookers as well. And so who is Jesus left with but his enemies, right? Only his enemies surround him at this point. Which brings us to the hearing. If we look at verse 55, we'll see exactly what the chief priests and the whole council wanted because we're, we need to look at who Jesus is to the Sanhedrin. So let, let me read it uh, quickly. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. So R.C. Sproul rightly noted in his commentary that this wasn't a truth-seeking mission. They weren't looking for facts. This was a witch hunt, plain and simple. If we, and if we look at the details of the account, what the Sanhedrin thought of Jesus becomes even more clear. So if we go back to 43, uh, verse 43, the mob that was sent by the Sanhedrin was heavily armed. So the Sanhedrin was prepared to take Jesus by force in the face of resistance from his disciples. So what are they worried about? They're worried about Jesus's ability to resist, right? They sent a powerful force because they perceived Jesus to be a powerful threat. Now, in verse 48, Jesus, Jesus complains about being treated as a common criminal. Have you come out against me as against a, have you come out against as, sorry, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. So the complaint isn't just with the violence that had sort of erupted around him. Remember Peter cutting off the servant, of, uh, the servant of the high priest's ear. But also with the fact that the Sanhedrin was doing this deed in the middle of the night, under the cloak of darkness, away from the eyes of the crowds. And so they thought that Jesus would cause an uproar when he was arrested, completely missing Jesus' willingness to go to the cross, to be arrested in the first place. And so they're not just worried about Jesus' ability to put up a fight, but they're also worried about the threat of his popularity with the people. And then we get into the irregularities of the trial itself. If we look at it, there's a number of irregularities and broken laws when it came to Jesus' trial. First, the trial didn't happen in the usual public place. Instead, it's held in the private residence of the high priest. Generally not a good thing. Two, this is also the only recorded instance of a Jewish trial happening at night. That's because it was illegal to conduct a Jewish trial at night. Furthermore, three, Jewish law forbade a trial to be held on the Sabbath, a feast day, or on the eve of uh, Sabbath or the feast day. Well, guess what? It's the eve of the Sabbath. So there goes another law. 
Now four, let's not forget about verse 56 either. It says, and some stood up and bore false witness against him. That means that members of the Sanhedrin, stood, it, the members of the Sanhedrin itself stood up to bear false witness after they, gave, they got frustrated that their pre-arranged witnesses, their testimonies didn't line up. And so surely bringing in false witnesses to testify and knowingly doing, doing that, probably a crime, right? Probably a crime. And then what about them actually getting up and bearing false witness themselves? There might be a commandment against that. I think it's the ninth one. Yes, it is in fact the ninth one. So remember, who is the Sanhedrin? It's the chief priests, the scribes, the elders. And what are they sworn to do? To uphold the Ten Commandments and the Torah. And guess what they're doing? Breaking the Ninth Commandment. Ugh. Not, not, not good, right? And lastly, if a criminal was convicted of a, of a capital crime, which is what they're doing here, Jewish law required the, the Sanhedrin meet again the next day to confirm their judgment. That law was specifically designed to prevent rash, improper, or sudden judgments in capital crime cases. You get the picture, right? And so what can we take from the willingness of the Sanhedrin to lay, leave a trail of broken laws in their haste to convict and execute Jesus? Jesus was a threat. That's easy. But we also see betrayal, right? in the Sanhedrin too, that in fact, that they're out for themselves. The Sanhedrin, consisting of the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders were, again, sworn to uphold the law of God. They were sworn to serve God in righteousness as they judged God's people, right? Crooked cops, crooked judges, not a good thing. So there were laws against that, and they had sworn an oath to do those things when they took those offices, but by breaking all of these laws, they have not only sinned against God, but they have also betrayed the oath that they took before God. But as we've seen, right, betrayal. What happens to betrayal in this, in this story, in our passage this day? It's overruled by sovereignty. So let's look at Jesus' words and the last few verses of our passage this morning, starting in verse 61. But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am, and you will see me, the son of man, seated at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? To, do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. And so what is Jesus saying here when he responds? Not only does he finally confirm that he is both the Messiah and the Son of God, but he also quotes from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14. Let me read that too. And behold, with the clouds of, of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And so what do we get? We get a picture of, one, a picture of power and sovereignty. 
Jesus is saying that their betrayal wasn't going to work out in the way that they thought it was going to because there was going to be another trial. Because there was going to be another trial where he would be the one sitting in judgment of them with all authority, dominion, and glory being given to him. And it was a warning. And it was a warning that he didn't have to give. He could have stayed silent and been righteous through it all. But instead, he gives them a warning. Why? We see grace here, right? Grace that was utterly missed by the Sanhedrin. A call to turn from their wicked ways. And isn't it interesting that in the midst of the Sanhedrin's condemnations and the following beatings, humiliation, and mockery, that Jesus, again, is displaying his sovereignty in those beatings, mockerings, mockery, and humiliations. Remember, the Sanhedrin is hitting Jesus and telling him to prophesy. They th they're throwing a cloak over him so that he can't see who's hitting him and saying, who hit you? It's sort of like middle school, right? Or like elementary school. It's like, who hit you? Who hit you? Who hit you? That's the kind of mockery that's coming to our Lord Jesus. But the funny thing is, they're telling him to prophesy. But they themselves are fulfilling one of several of Jesus' prophecies. Jesus prophesied back in chapter 8, 9, and 10 what would happen to him in Jerusalem. So let's look at them real quickly. He prophesied that he would be condemned to death. Good, check. And that he, the chief priests and the scribes would mock him. Check. And spit on him. Check. And then flog him. That's coming. Okay. So even as, they, as he is sort of receiving all of these beatings and humiliations, they're getting their answer as they do it. Such is the sovereignty of our God. And I hope that you see that all of this is Jesus doing the driving, right? And where is he driving? He's driving to the cross. Jesus didn't have to say a word to defend himself, and yet he says gracious words of warning, right? That led to what? His conviction. You see how even the sham of a trial fulfilled Jesus' prophecies and the scriptures about the Messiah being silent, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Jesus was and is in complete control throughout. Up to this point, we've spent our time talking about how wrong Jesus, uh, Judas and uh, the Sanhedrin were about Jesus and seeing how Jesus sovereignly overruled all of those betrayals. But I think that all of this has really set us up for one more question, right? Well, what about us? How does this apply to us in 2020? Friends, we tend to look at the betrayals of Judas and the Sanhedrin as things that we would never do. We tend to shake our heads at them as if we haven't done essentially the same thing. Friends, we're betrayers and traitors every single time we sin. But it gets worse. As Christians, our sinfulness could be considered to be worse. Judas clearly wasn't transformed in his heart. Clearly, he wasn't united to Christ. Clearly, he was still in the grip of his depravity. But Christians are different. We have been united to Christ. 
We are currently new creations in Christ. We have been freed from the power of sin by the power of the gospel. In short, we know better and we are better than Judas and the Sanhedrin. And yet, what do we do? We spit in Jesus' face every single time we sin. When we sin, we say, I don't care about what you said, Jesus. I don't care that you died for my sins so that I wouldn't have to keep doing this thing that I'm about to do. But guess what? I'm going to do it anyway because I want to do it. In the end, you and me, we're betrayers and traitors, just like Judas and the Sanhedrin. We're about to sing um, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. That's our closing song this morning. In it, we sing, it was, my, it was my sin that held him there. It was my sin, our sin, that was being poured out on Jesus on the cross. But notice that the song didn't say that it put him there. But just as with the betrayals by Judas and the Sanhedrin, Jesus didn't do anything that he didn't already plan to do, right? We didn't put Jesus on the cross. We didn't put him anywhere that he didn't want to already be. He chose to go to the cross. And he could have come down whenever he wanted. But he wanted to stay on the cross until it was finished. And so it was my sin that held him there because he wanted to be held there. And finish it, he did. Jesus had you and me in mind as he died. And he had you and me in mind when he rose in victory from the grave because all because of Jesus' sovereignty, working for his people, for you and for me. And it, and it is in Jesus' sovereign choice to die, to save, that we find our hope. Because we've been asking, in fact, the wrong question all morning. It's not, we've been asking, what was Jesus, Judas and the Sanhedrin thinking about Jesus? Who is Jesus to Judas and the Sanhedrin? Who is, Judas to, uh, uh, who is Jesus to us? But that's the wrong question. The, re, the right question is, who am I to Jesus? Which is where we're, we're going to end this morning. Who am I to Jesus? You see, my friends, salvation isn't ultimately about what we think about Jesus. It isn't about who Jesus is to me. It's not even about acknowledging that Jesus is Lord, because even the demons do that. Rather, salvation is ultimately about what Jesus thinks about me. Jesus, salvation is about who I am to Jesus. Sovereignty means that Jesus is in control, and what I think doesn't really matter all that much, or at all even. And Matthew 7 makes this very clear, starting in verse 20, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will say to them, declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And why do I bring this up? Because Judas said just that. Lord, Lord, when he kissed Jesus. In the ESV, it's rendered rabbi. 
But in some of the manuscripts, it's actually rabbi, rabbi, or as the KJV puts it, master, master. And so Judas's problem wasn't that he didn't know who Jesus really was. Judas's problem wasn't that he was selfish and self-absorbed. It wasn't even that he betrayed Jesus. Judas's problem is that ultimately, Jesus never knew him in a saving sense. Judas's problem is that even though he outwardly did great things as one of the disciples and had the privilege of being right there with him, Jesus never knew him. And to be clear, Jesus knew who Judas was, right? But to be truly known by Jesus for salvation means that he calls you to be united to him, that he has made you his and that you are now a family, a member of the family of God. Judas wasn't known on this level. He got a taste of it simply by being in Jesus' presence. But he wasn't brought out of the darkness and into the light. And so what happens? Judas departs from him as a worker of lawlessness. And this can be a really hard place to end the sermon, right? Sitting in the sovereign hand of God, knowing that we could do nothing to tip the scales one way or the other. That's the proper place to be. Because it reminds us that, that the grace that we receive in Christ Jesus is just that. It's grace. We don't do it, deserve it, and we did nothing to get it. It's gracious. If you're not sure that you've been united with Christ, if you don't believe upon him for salvation, if you don't know that he loves you and knows you, today is a day to hear his call to you to repent and believe. If you are a Christian and profess that Jesus is your Lord and Savior, what does that mean? That means we're known through and through and that we can have full assurance. Why? Because it's not up to us. It's up to Jesus. Our hope rests upon Jesus alone, and Jesus is faithful. And so let's end properly with some scripture. I'm going to read Hebrews 10, 19 through 23. Hear now the sovereignty of the Lord and his graciousness and faithfulness to those whom he loves and knows. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? For he who promised is faithful. It's always upon Jesus that we, that we are saved. So let us pray. Father, you are faithful to a bunch of faithless sinners, traitors, and betrayers. You sent your son to die for us while we were yet sinners. Lord, we are so thankful that we are known by you, that we are able to draw near to you with full assurance, knowing that we have been cleansed by your blood. We are so thankful that you have sovereignly chosen us to be your children, to be united with you, to save us, 
and that you sovereignly chose to save us on the cross, to take all that we deserve on our behalf. Father, you are mighty to save and your love for us is so, so deep. The wonders of your gospel are amazing and in your loving hands we rest. May we remember in whose hands we sit and would we rejoice that we are known by you. Pray these things in the holy and matchless name of Jesus. Amen. From Jude, verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.